Have you heard of the Oregon Project? Started by Nike in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, it, was, it was launched to gather runners into an elite community where they trained with, with a famous running coach, Alberto Salazar, and athletes such as Mo Farah, a, a two-time gold medalist, joined this community. And no expense was spared. Scientists figured out how to simulate high-altitude training by removing oxygen from the air somehow. They offered monitors to help runners discern how fast and, and how far to run. They had, they had underwater and low-gravity treadmills. But the real draw was to work with Alberto Salazar. Have you heard of him? He, he won the Boston Marathon in what was famously called the, the, the duel in the sun against Dick Beardsley. He was ranked the number one runner in the world. The mythology grew around Salazar, especially when he collapsed in 2007 on the Nike campus. His heart stopped beating for 14 minutes. He wrote a book about that experience and how he came back to coaching in nine days. Now, as a very mediocre runner, I have always been fascinated how people train. Now, this hasn't helped me very much. But I have tracked Salazar's life with admiration. But this past week, we learned everything was not on the up and up, as they say in the Oregon Project. This past week, we learned this community of athletes, there were some problems. Our theme this fall, Flourish, Nine Keys to Practicing Your Faith, was prompted by the Human Flourishing Project, a study that Harvard supported, and whose research discovered that choosing to align our lives with a faith community and to be engaged in its practices enables us to steer away from, from risky behaviors, addictions, and mental health issues such as depression, in other words, we flourish in church. And what practices can we choose in our lives? What can, what can we adopt in order to flourish? So far, we've considered how reading the Bible can lead us to a place of no danger. As Lynn phrased it a few weeks ago, we considered how Scripture invites us to ground our lives in, in generosity. We read a generous person will, will prosper. Wherever it refreshes others will be refreshed. And Jesus rephrased that spiritual truth as it is more blessed to, to give than it is to receive. We've noted how prayer enables us to flourish, especially when we pray the prayer of examine. When we come to know ourselves in prayer as God knows us. Last Sunday, we turned to God's gift of music and how we are all invited to find our place in the celestial all-comers choir as we praise God through lyric and melody, which brings us this morning to the practice of community, which if we think about it, we encounter throughout Scripture, the insight that God did not create us to go through life alone. 
In fact, the first community we discover as we, as we read the Bible is the community that God immediately creates with human beings. Over and over again, God says versions of what our Creator declares in Genesis chapter 17. God says, I will, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants for generations to come. In the New Testament, after the birth of Jesus, that that community expands from the Israelites to include the Gentiles, to, to include us. As we read in Ephesians, there is one body, there is one spirit. Just as you are called to the one hope of your calling, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of us all. Community, proclaims scripture, is at the heart of the spiritual life. Community is at the core of what we might call the practices of faith. Meaning, this is at the core of who and what we are. Last week, as we considered the practice of music, I quoted something that Kurt Vonnegut once said. He said, if I should ever die, let this be my epitaph, the only proof he needed for the existence of God was music. This week, I was rereading a book I enjoyed a few years ago called This Explains Everything and came across another Vonnegut quote. He said this, We are what we pretend to be. So we must be careful about what we pretend to be. That's interesting, isn't it? Dr. Tim Wilson, a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia, suggests this insight gives us a clue into how the world works and even how our lives work. As he puts Vonnegut's quote, people become what they do. People become what they do. What does that mean? Well, in psychology circles, there is what is called the the self-perception theory. And what is that? Else Wilson explains, people draw inferences about who they are by observing their own behavior. In other words, often our behavior is shaped by subtle pressures around us. But we fail to recognize those pressures. Thus, we mistakenly believe our our behavior emanates from our own inner disposition. Meaning, people become what they do. Which somewhat makes sense, doesn't it? Yes, we have our our inner core belief, our our soul, our our moral compass, our, our, our disposition. And that helps guide our words and our actions. But equally important... As self-perception theory says, is what we observe ourselves doing. As Wilson notes, if we observe ourselves, for example, returning a a wallet we found to its owner, or, or placing trash in a recycled bin, 
that reinforces our sense of who we are and the moral choices we make. So what problems emerged in the Oregon Project? One article deemed it basically medical malpractice. The United States Anti-Doping Agency reported last week they had determined Salazar was a was a medicine chest, and that door swung open for all these athletes on Nike's payroll. He provided them with, with medicine and with drugs that, that increased their performance. He received just this week a four-year ban from the sport. But in that report, it was also clear that this community, the Oregon Project, was now under suspicion. As one article noted, while the credibility of Nike's involvement will come under scrutiny, so will the athletes like Mo Farah, who won two gold medals, Galen Rupp, who came in second in the Olympics, and a dozen of other athletes and staff involved. One of the findings of the project that Harvard supported was it matters with whom we align our lives. In other words, yes, it's important to set aside time to read the Bible. Yes, it's important to choose to, to live a generous life. Yes, it's important to pray the prayer of examine. Yes, it's important to invite music into your life to praise God. But there is also worth our consideration to reflect on what is it outside of us that influences our decisions, that, that nudges our choices, and can come to slowly define us. Everyone belongs to many different communities defined by, among other things, geography, religion, ethnicity, income, cuisine, interest, race, ideology, or intellectual heritage. Choose one of the communities to which you belong and describe that community and your place within it. That's one of the three supplemental questions those applying to the University of Michigan must answer. Most colleges ask something similar. Hallie, our daughter, is beginning to work on her college essays. And we found that question fascinating because it asks us to define what communities we belong to, but it also asks this deeper question. How do those communities come to define our identity and our sense of who we are? I wonder this morning, what communities define your life? How would you answer that college application question? And perhaps here's even the more important question. How does that community define who you are? Because if people become what they do, what we do then shapes who we are. As Dr. Wilson observes, people draw inferences by their own behavior, which shapes who they are. 
Now, as I was reflecting on that question this week, what came to mind, for example, was our Tuesday morning breakfast club for our youth, a community of children that has been a part of our family's life. They meet, as you know, at 6.30 in the morning for breakfast at Wolfgang's with Amy Conway. They share their brags. They share their snags. They share inspirational thoughts, and they gather to support each other in a stressful world. I thought of our up groups of, of 29 up and 49 up and 69 up and, and the relationships formed and the memories that you share there. I thought of the Bible studies of which you are a part, the, the chancel and the children and the youth choirs and friendly visitors and, and our many committees and our church council as you gather in community to support this community. And I thought of Sudanese Grace and how we have shared this facility these past seven years and supported each other and this morning break bread around this common ta table together and celebrate this exciting new chapter in your congregation's life. For as our reading from the Psalms this morning affirms, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. For as Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, I'm there. So may we all, I pray this fall, flourish in church as we each find our place in the family of God, in this community of faith and hope and love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.